The game of Basset peaked in popularity across Europe in the first half of the 18th century. From the Wikipedia page, Basset, quote, is a gambling card game that was considered one of the most polite. It was intended for persons of the highest rank because of the great losses or gains that might be accrued by players, unquote. In 1744, Swedenborg dreamt of a game of Basset, but he had no money with which to join in. Upon waking, he knew it was not money that he lacked, but that he had lost all sense of his religious understanding. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we offer what tricks help us break the spell of a downward spiraling mood. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, discusses Swedenborg's complex relationship to class and hierarchy. Then we travel to 1744 and get a front row seat to Swedenborg's spiritual transformation this week in history. Hey, Curtis. Hey, Chelsea. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. Thanks. Yeah, well, it's good to have you here, and it's fun to uh, be together and talking about the uh, content that we've been exploring this week on Off the Left Eye. Um, This past week's topic was about the book of Revelation, and actually the first of two that we're going to be exploring. And so this past week, we were talking about Revelation, the bottomless pit, and that episode, people can find it on our YouTube channel or, of course, listen to it as a podcast on the Swedenborg and Life podcast channel. And um, it's an exciting topic. And so would you like to respond to the reflection question with me? I got to. I got to um, respond to the bottomless pit reflection question. <laughs> I know. I was, I was intrigued myself of like, what is the question going to be? Have you ever um, found yourself at the bottom <laughs> of a bottomless pit? If so... Could you really say it's bottomless? Okay, well, you, you've pretty much said it because, well, here is the reflection question. When you feel yourself getting sucked into a pit of negativity, what can help pull you back up? Breathing techniques. Oh, yeah? Tell me more. Um, I just have like a few I can reach for, um, you know, breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, something like that. That's the that's the surest way. No, not sure. Like it doesn't have a hundred percent success rate, but that's my best tool that I'll grab for when I start to get anxious. It's like, okay, I'm just gonna start to breathe. Um, and I'll also walk. Like I'll start moving, you know, and that often is kind to me. That's awesome. That's really cool. I Yeah. That's cool to know. Um I uh yeah, I feel like there's lots of things one one tool that um that does help me is actually just like naming what exactly is happening you know like if it is just like oh this i'm having anxiety you know if it's anxiety or i'm you know whatever the whatever the thoughts are that whatever the particular flavor of pit i'm falling into it but going along with that recognition is like just paying attention to what am I actually feeling in my body, 
you know, just and, and it's sort of it's similar because that inherently ends up connecting me to my breath usually, you know, so I don't, I'm not like consciously saying, OK, breathe. I I sort of slow down my breathing so I can pay attention to what what am I feeling in my body right now and just get really on the level of just sensation. And it's amazing how that ends up being sort of like a um, a refuge from the turmoil that's going on on a deeper level, you know, like just just sort of grounding myself in in the in the here and now. And that kind of gives me enough of a a break to think about how can I approach the thoughts and feelings that are coming up for me? Um, yeah, it's interesting yeah. that the pit is often voluntary, even though it feels like you're just falling, like gravity is sucking you in. The fall depends on you thinking one thing and then thinking the thing that that leads to and then thinking the thing that that leads to. And the kind of pausing that you're talking about just to reflect on what's happening or what I was saying with the breath, when you're taking enough time to rather than follow the train of thought, do something else, that in itself breaks the momentum of the pit and you lose that sort of I am falling into a pit feeling which part of the fear that keeps you further falling is this feeling of I'm falling into a pit but you don't realize it's a pit you just think everything is collapsing so take a break is the first line of defense and sometimes you would you could do that with the 23rd psalm or some religious thing sometimes it's breath but you just got to break that momentum yeah I think that that definitely just nails it that that's uh any any of these tools that that just uh I was going to say you sort of snaps you out of it, but I was remembering actually in one of our shows, Jerry Marzinski was on our show and he talked about how uh, even was it actually snapping or like snapping a rubber band or something like yes. just these actions that kind of draw you into just the present moment into your physical, you know, sensory existence is enough to just break that that train of momentum, that that growing sense of of something uh going wrong so that's really interesting and uh, when things are going well when i have a little bit more of a foothold the next step up is to assert that i have gotten out of states like this before and eventually i will be out of this one nice and i yes. try to uh, you know as i kind of go in and out of these anxious states whether it's the way i'm feeling physically or the way i'm feeling emotionally and mentally which are obviously very affected by each other I can look back now and say well there's been so many times when it felt like I don't know how I'm going to get better or how this is going to resolve but then it does so it's always sort of the court of public opinion in your mind you can't force it but at times you will have this confidence then instilled that I will eventually be out of this and back to a state where I'm feeling good and when that kicks in you've got this sustaining hope that, that Swedenborg mentions a few different places that that is like a whole nother level of comfort even though you're you know falling down the pit definitely it that is such a such a useful tool and um it it was bringing so many different thoughts to my mind but one one is that uh another sort of the next step for me is uh, often to just ask myself, what do you need right now? You know, like almost approaching whatever my state is from just a loving perspective of what do you need? And then having the sort of humility in my own own mind to listen to like, what is the wisdom that comes up in that moment? You know, and, and for example, like it might just be, you need to rest, you know, or like you just need, like sometimes there's just the simplest, uh, you know, most like, like 
weak sounding even result and yet it just ends up feeling so true and when i listen to that then things things continue to shift you know i'm given insight into the next into whatever i'm being led to next but so for me that's often just yeah resting or going outside or you know needing needing a break or something um so yeah be weak for a little while exactly listening to this song and the person singing was the lyrics were something approximately you are so fragile in so many ways uh come into me or something like that right yeah and it struck me as quite lovely that somebody is describing someone as fragile but not as an insult it's just a a, a statement of you know your value is not being assessed here it's just an observation about your state you're fragile you know sometimes you're fragile and the right thing to do then is what fragile things do, whatever they need to do, rest and recuperate and do whatever yes. sounds wimpy because that's what we need you to do to yeah. get back to your strength. And that that is the, you know, one of the most fragile things is a newborn baby. You know, nobody's going to be chiding a newborn baby for being fragile. You know, you just want to keep them warm and keep them safe. And, you know, so like treating treating ourselves with that much love, I feel like that's that's a good thing. That's part of the appeal of a newborn baby is their fragility something about it is magnetic because when you're holding think of holding a newborn baby and part of why it feels so good is it just like this thing is so little and you have to be like so slow and gentle and hold the head up because the head just like talk about fragile like if you just don't support the head it's in trouble so you've got to do all that stuff but that's a part of why it's so fun to hold a baby is you got to be careful yeah, and it's a, I think we're getting close to that sense of that like sort of eternal truth of what surrender is like, you know, like letting go and just letting it be okay that you're feeling the way you're feeling, just like how you would with a newborn baby. That that will help you shift out of that, you know, because so often the the company you have in a pit of negativity are the thoughts that are shaming you for even having a hard time in whatever the moment is, you know, like it just so anything that can connect you back to that kind of uh the love you might feel for a precious little newborn having a hard time is in it's cool (laughs) now to have a hard time so don't anybody who's saying you shouldn't be having a hard time in your mind squares man they're they're out of date yes (laughs) that's right so that's great well thanks for uh doing some reflecting with me on that curtis and For anyone listening, if you want to hear uh, others' responses, you can go read them actually on our community tab on our YouTube channel or or on any of our social media channels at Off the Left Eye. We post a new reflection question with our topic of the week every Thursday. And now, like I said, this past week we were exploring Revelation chapter 9, and this next week is a break week. But we'll be back on October 19th to explore Revelation chapter 10. But I have a little like tidbit for these Revelation chapters, um, a little tip for our listeners, which is if you want some extra reading, if you have just listened to this show with us, you might be interested to know that Swedenborg added on, uh, it's, it's sort of his custom, his style with his biblical exegesis is to go through the inner meaning of a book but then at the end of a chapter to just relate some of his what we call memorable experiences or basically these spiritual experiences that he has and he can go into detail and it's often those experiences that are sort of packed with extra spiritual insight 
and often interesting to see, like, to wonder just pairing this one story he gives with the chapter that you've just finished studying. So, so for anyone who sort of wants to go the extra mile in, in exploring these topics, I wanted to let people know that uh, you can go to his work, Apocalypse Revealed, is how you'll find it named on the Swedenborg.com website if you want to go find um, a easy free download of a PDF. Um, Apocalypse Revealed, number 463. And if you go there, you'll find this wild story about Swedenborg seeing children feeding a double-headed tortoise and he digs into what that represents um and and it's it's a great tale so um classic double-headed tortoise (laughs) in the spiritual world that symbolizes something yep there you go you know that tortoise made an appearance in one of our videos once yeah, I was trying to think. Was that like eight strange places in the afterlife? I can't you got me. All I know is uh, Jesse drew that a million years ago, and it's in some video. We got too many videos. I mean, we have enough. But it's hard. <laughs> Not it's enough. Hard. Yeah. But yes. So this next week is a break week. But tune in on the nineteenth to watch Revelation: The Mystery of the Seven Thunders. And there's sort of three main images that occur in this chapter there's this vision of an angel a voice like thunder i just love the idea of like thunder happening and then you being able to hear a message in thunder like has that ever happened to you um and then this a little book that john is told to eat so if you want to explore the inner meaning of all that interesting imagery with us tune in on the 19th Thanks, Curtis. And I look forward now to catch up with you at the end of the show to see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history. So here we are at the point in the show when, uh, wherein we see the NCE. That's a phonetic anagram I've made up about this. Nice. (laughs) um wherein we see the nce hello jonathan it's great to have you here great to be here and so what news this week i love getting to hear the discoveries the context just all all the interesting things that you are finding i imagine you you know madly working at your desk translating and having just light shining out of these books or something it's true every day yes um, And I have to admit, I'm kind of obsessed. I'm still thinking about the um, introduction uh, that I wrote to the Shorter Works of 1763 that came out this past summer. And um, just the things that I was um, taught uh, in the course of doing that process and everything and the things that I reflected about have stayed with me. And the one I thought of talking about today was... um, Swedenborg's relationship to hierarchy. And what I'm talking about specifically is uh, there's a lot of talk in that introduction about how Swedenborg was targeting the leaders of society, the clergy leaders, uh, and also the nobility. And he did this in England, and then he shifted and he did it in Sweden. uh, And he did it in various places in Europe to try to target, you know, high-level people. 
And so that got me thinking about Swedenborg and his relationship to that, because he was a member of the nobility, a member of the um, a parliament in, in Sweden, uh, and yet, uh, uncharacteristically of his time, I would say, he was very interested in sort of Joe and Jane on the street. You know, that was a big part of his mm -hmm. thought. So it's interesting to think about him targeting these people. Often what you did, and frankly what Swedenborg did with his earlier works before his enlightenment or spiritual eyes were opened or whatever you want to call it, yeah, uh, he would dedicate his books to people in the hopes that they would contribute to the cost of publication or just for flattery and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And you don't see him doing that in these published theological works. They're not dedicated to hmm. the great so-and-so. I remember right. the end of one of these, it just pops to mind, but the end of one of these, uh, I think it was in his Principia, he signs himself, Per humilimus cultor, suae serenitatis, the most uh, humble worshiper of your serenity. <laughs> you know, this was the kind of attitude that you would have toward people. It was much more stratified. Yes. We still live in a stratified society with rich and poor and so on. But but it was crazy then, the layers of the nobility yes. and who could talk to whom and who could marry whom and all, all that sort of thing. Right. So it's interesting that he, even though he was a nobleman, he loved to live in the houses of tradesmen and learn their crafts. So yeah. he would stay there and he would learn what, what they were doing. And when he died, uh, his will, which somebody um, dug up in the Stockholm records, left an extraordinary amount of money to his gardener and the housekeeper. And hmm. um, uh, he, was, he was not about, oh, you know, I'm a nobleman because I deserve it more than the other people who are around me or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so his attitude is interesting to me. So he's targeting these people, and I think he believed in hierarchy. He talks a lot about monarchy and leadership and, and those kinds of things. Sure. So I don't think he was just pushing for a, a big sort of communal living situation or something. Right. Uh, but I think he felt that the leaders were failing the people. Mm. He has an interesting quote at the very beginning of Heaven and Hell that I want to share where he says, Church people these days know practically nothing about heaven and hell or their life after death, even though there are descriptions of everything available to them in the word. In fact, many who have been born in the church deny all this. In their hearts, they are asking who has ever come back to tell us about it. To prevent this negative attitude especially prevalent among people who have acquired a great deal of worldly wisdom hmm. from infecting and corrupting people of simple heart and simple faith. It's been granted me to be with angels and to talk with them person to person. So hmm. part of his mission was to kind of rescue the common man and woman from this kind of polluted thought that was coming down from the upper echelons. And in order to do that, he had to engage with those folks who were his own peers. Yep. And yet also kind of rebuke them a little bit, <laughs> you know, take them to task. And you often, as you read his writings, you see that the there are some situations where a whole series of people in the other world are asked whether they can see this uh, spiritual object or not. 
and a mm. lot of the supposedly wise can't see it. And then a right. couple of simple folk come up from the end of the line and, well, yeah, I think I can make it out. And, yeah. you know, they, <laughs> they could see the whole thing. And, and um, this often happens in his work that I think one of the surprises to him when he went to the other world was that, uh, oh, wisdom is not what you think it is. Uh, the people at the top are not who you think, you know. As the Bible says, you know, the humble shall be exalted and the proud shall be brought low and that kind of mm. thing. And so he had an interesting job. Here he is writing in Latin. So Latin, uh, first of all, writing at all, you can only really expect that men are going to read your work. Right. It was at least 100 years before women were allowed into college or yeah, any kind of amazing. situation where they'd be taught reading and writing. It doesn't mean that no women knew how to read and write. He actually supported the writings of uh, several right. women in his world who who were learned and he wrote poems about them and d dedicating, you know, often you'd write a poem that would appear in someone else's work as kind of like endorsements or blurbs on the jacket of a book kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and so he, there, there were a few women, but you more or less had to be taught by your father, like there was some extraordinary circumstance. Yes. Because the normal course of things was not for, for women to become educated and be able to read and write like that, and especially not in Latin. And so uh, Swedenborg's writing in the language that I think will help him reach people as broadly as possible, but it's also kind of a top-down thing he's trying to do. And yet he's not trying to sort of uh, tell everybody at the top that they're great, they're fine, don't change a thing, <laughs> you know, you're there because you deserve it. He's saying, uh, you're not doing right, you're not thinking about this right, and actually the the folks lower down the totem pole are, are wiser than you are. That's so interesting. It's kind of like he's he's willing to play the game, but he's subverting it at the same time with the very with the ideas that he's putting out into the world that way. You know, like he's gonna well put toe the line, but he's gonna be a uh, you know get feeding new information to everybody that will and shift it helps things. me understand the kind of mixed reaction that he got because it wouldn't take people too long reading the book to sort of. Oh, really? You know, this is in what I just read was Heaven and Hell, section one. You know, <laughs> yes. it's like the front page of Heaven and Hell Sticking that Cardi yeah. leads with in his most popular book. So, yeah, they would figure out pretty quickly that he's not uh, about f flattering them. And yet it is yeah. still written in a way that's accessible to them in their language, in the language of philosophy and, and you know, ecclesiastical studies and so on. Yeah. And it really, it's it's really interesting to think where it's like, I know Swedenborg didn't know what was coming, but he, and certainly, uh, you know, yeah, his vision of what the new church was, uh, he, he would have some sense of that, but he had no idea what the particulars would be. But just, uh, it's very cool to think that he... He didn't necessarily know, but maybe he had some premonition that something like this could be possible, that by publishing these books, they could be perennially in print and then be translated and made available in this world that was going to be changing drastically in very short order where you would be having mass access to education and being able to write and read. And, and then, you know, ultimately today with the Internet, it's just like, it's just very cool to he, he was sort of set up well to get his books published, but 
Uh, obviously, his message was for a much wider audience than just those first, you know, tip of the, the domino trail, you know, to get it out into the world. Early adopters. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, very well put. And it makes me think of even the Latin itself that he wrote in. Uh, yes, he's writing in Latin and yeah. he's very capable. You know, he's written poetry and lots of prose in Latin and really knows his way around the language very thoroughly. But the style of Latin that he adopted for the theological works was a little different Hmm. than his philosophical Latin from earlier on. Oh, it's a very straightforward modern Latin. It's actually relatively easy to translate into English because the word order is a little more Germanic, you might say. Hmm. And um, he's not doing the sort of fancy convoluted thing that Latin was capable of doing if you're just sort of trying to show off that you know how to use participles in the native <laughs> yes. or something. And, and uh, so it's interesting that he would, he's, uh, even in the writing itself, he's trying to do both yes. w- with the analogies and, and all that. So it was difficult to try to reach an audience that at that moment didn't exist, a reading audience. Yes. You know, now we're in such a different circumstance, especially where you have something like Off the Left Eye, where you can have visuals and music and all kinds of stuff to get the message across. Yep. And we've got the NCE that is the New Century Edition that is putting it into accessible modern English, you know, so not even the flowery English that can be a pain to read for anybody, but actually very accessible, you know. That is great, too. I love a quote from George Dole, the translator of the 7063s and a number of other works in the NCE. He says, um, to represent Swedenborg's simplicity in English is not simple. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true, to, to, try, to try to get those thoughts yes. across as accessibly and to try to convey some of that simplicity of the original is, is challenging. But I do feel... Uh, that the New Century Edition gets closer than the translations of 100 years ago. Yes. Um, at uh, uh, making it more readily accessible by a, a broad, um, you know, audience of, of readers. That's right. It is, a, it is a changing world, and I'm so grateful that we have the work of the New Century Edition. So thank you so much, Jonathan, for being here and giving us this insight into what you've learned through your work in the NCE. Well, thank you for giving a, a lonely scholar an opportunity to talk to <laughs> other humans now. <laughs> it's lovely Thanks. to be able to share yeah. what goes on in NCE land because it's a very vibrant uh, land and a fun community and everything, but we don't always get to bring it out to oh, others. Well. It's an honor, and it would be an honor to have you join me now to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. Welcome, Curtis and Jonathan. We made it. Hey there. We made it to the end of the show, to the main event, to where Swedenborg was this week in history. It's all building up to this. Up to this magical moment and here we are this is uh october 11th and we are not only going back in time to this very week in 1744 which 1744 is uh, a number that is getting familiar to our listeners because 
we are we've spent a lot of time in this year in Swedenborg's life this for this past uh, several episodes of this show and this time we're not just going back to the week we're going back to the very night so like last night this week in history Swedenborg was having some interesting night visions and that's what we're going to explore today this summer of 1744 was a real transitional one for Swedenborg in terms of we've documented through this show various points where he is having this. I mean, it really is the timeline of his spiritual awakening. And like, we're in the thick of it right now. And so much so that just a week and a half ago, we were talking about him gaining entrance to be a member of the society of this community in heaven that, or, or spiritual world heaven. I'm not exactly sure, but of uh, these people who lived in a palace in the spiritual world that overlooked this beautiful grove of figs. And it was sort of like this momentous occasion because it was him really getting sort of a spiritual world address. Like it was getting set in place that he was now sort of a conscious resident of the spiritual world and still wakeful and alive and functional and everything living his day-to-day life in in the physical world. And so what happens next, you might wonder. And uh, what I love with all of these moments that we've been exploring, you you might think the kind of hallmark or postcard way is like, dun-da-da-da, grand big party, you're now, you know, a member of this community in heaven and like everything, you live happily ever after or something. And the truth is, is that Swedenborg is just at the beginning of, of sort of some, you know, continual change and spiritual growth. And, and this very next moment that he enters upon is like the necessary transition of, or time when you get to this place of feeling like, you know, nothing. <laughs> um, and so we'll, we'll explore this. On the very so a little a little bit of preamble he's writing ever since he gained that entrance to the gable palace the gable the gable end of this beautiful palace as he describes it um, he is continually writing down his dreams so even though he's had at this point that experience of having a spirit address him during daylight hours you know like when he's just fully awake having an interaction in that way it seems like his spiritual interactions are still concentrated in the night um and he's having these dreams where he's grappling with whether to keep writing the great work of the soul's domain which uh we've explored in previous episodes whether to keep writing that or just give all of his energy to this new theological work that he's writing the worship and love of god and he keeps kind of going back and forth chronicling this in his journal of dreams um and and afterwards, at this very night, or the night of the 10th into the 11th, he describes this dream. He says, I then met a gentleman whom I asked if I could enter his service because I had lost my fortune on account of the war, but the answer was no. They seemed to be playing Basset. The money kept changing hands, but I was with them all the time. I asked my manservant if he had said that I owned anything. He answered that he had not. And I said that he should not say anything but this. So that's him describing this dream. And he says, it signifies 
that I have no knowledge in religion, but have lost it all. So that seems like a kind of down place for Swedenborg, don't you think? He still got a manservant. I, I don't have one of those. <laughs> in his dreams. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> As was customary. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's in a good spot because I was just uh, compiling a talk about the holiness that lies in ignorance and that angels only can have their holiness through this tacit acknowledgement that what they know about any given thing is relatively nothing compared to what there is to be known and that if they don't have that constantly in front of them they they can't be angels so he may feel emptied out then but he's in a good spot and if memory serves the next night he has another feeling along the same lines of just being reduced to childhood almost of just like knowing nothing yes and, and needing to start over again and and i really think that's pretty cool because how else would you go from uh, you know, how old is he? He's 56 years old and he's uh, well-known in Europe as a scientist. He's got quite a reputation. He's been publishing a lot. And uh, yes. and yet now he needs to hold this new information in his mind. So he needs to be emptied out to get ready for, and he doesn't even know what's going to happen, but he just knows that he's, you know, being reduced to this childlike state of not knowing anything and starting over again and that's and so yeah he he's he gets to that point of really feeling like i just know nothing which is right an amazing place for him to get at that point in his life when he really has had a very successful career but he's getting this really deep inner acknowledgement about it um and it is just not the very next night but the night after that that he gets some this comfort and insight. And I love it because it does, like you're saying, Curtis, what he's going through, just like at the crest of the wave in himself, has the elements of what become just the principles he learns that are the basis for all of our spiritual growth. You know, like this is a phase that we all kind of go through. And here's here's what he writes, um, again, for the night of the 12th into the 13th, um, and it's number 266 for in, in Journal of Dreams and into 267. He says, afterwards, again, this is just picking, jumping into him talking about dreams. Afterwards, I seem to say to myself that the Lord himself will instruct me, for I found that I am in such a condition that I know nothing about religion, except that Christ must be the all in all, or God through Christ, so that we ourselves are not able to do the least thing towards it, and still less strive for it. And therefore, it is best to surrender oneself unconditionally, and further, that if one could be entirely passive in this thing, it would be the most perfect state. And so he's getting this sense of insight and there's this um, confirmation of it immediately following where he's still talking about this night of dreams. He says, I saw also in a vision that beautiful loaves of bread were presented to me on a plate. This was a premonition that the Lord himself will instruct me since I have now first come into such a state that I know nothing and that all preconceived opinions have been taken away from me, which is the beginning of learning, that one must first become a child and then be wet-nursed into knowledge as is now taking place with me. I think we got wow. a classic addition by subtraction here because everything that he lost, that he air quotes, I don't know if you can see him, lost all that religious knowledge 
it's of no value compared to what he gained afterwards because there was plenty of people in his day that didn't lose any of their religious knowledge. None of us are reading their books. We're not interested in it. But what Swedenborg gained, he, he, he may have felt like, oh, I lost all this stuff that was meaningful. No, you didn't. You just, you just didn't properly assess the value of that stuff. You, you didn't see the divine plan, which is to hand you things that make everything else obsolete <laughs> because they're so much better. And it's hard for us to dial ourselves back in time into the mindset then yeah. because now there's quite a lot of idea of surrender and yeah. opening yourself and stuff like that. That was not the flavor of the month in the Enlightenment, uh, the time that he was alive. Right. Uh, it was all about the power of the mind and you make plans and, you you know, mm, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't about nothingness and it wasn't about emptying the mind um, Oh, yeah. And for him to sort of prostrate at the feet of God religiously, he would have gotten made fun of at the at the scientist's table at the time. <laughs> I know. And it's it's really, really amazing to see him. Uh, you know, he is going through this surrendering, which was what Curtis and I were talking about at the beginning of the show of like on this in somewhat of a larger scale in this moment but you can just really get a sense of what that feels like for him where he's having to just let go and trust even though he doesn't know what's coming next you know and uh but he's he's willing to put his trust in god and boy is it worth it um (laughs) because we know all of that greater knowledge that he's coming into very soon Um, i've never connected the dots until just now but he says often in his theological works that rebirth is like a birth and all the same stages of gestation and birth and so mm-hmm. on and growing up apply as well to the rebirth. But I'd never connected that with this moment. Right. You know, uh, he, it's not theoretical when he's talking about this. He, exactly. He's experienced it. He's, he's gone through it and he realized, oh, I, I really am starting over again. I think that's what I just love about this. First of all, the fact that we have the record of this Journal of Dreams and uh, and his spiritual experiences, which again, weren't written for publication, but were then uh, posthumously published. And so you dip in here and it's just like, af- after having studied his theology, you know, and what you might think is sort of, oh yeah, the theoretical framework for how one, you know, becomes an angel or something and goes through spiritual growth, growth processes and He's, he is living it. And again, it's not abstract and intellectual. He is like thick in the mud of, you know, those, the, all the feelings that, that we go through and the real, you know, states of anguish and doubt and then perseverance and strength. Like it just paints this really beautiful picture of just seeing, getting a little window into his experience. How precious is that journal of dreams if we didn't have that? there'd be such a lot we'd be missing about his process. It's really lucky that that came down to us. That's true. And yeah, and it, it does feel like, you know, uh, tender uh, or, you know, like it's a very, here we are looking into his journal. He was not expecting anybody to be reading this stuff. And here we are making a podcast about it. So it's like, I don't know. I want to honor, you know, him as a person and, uh, you know, respect this catalog that uh, is really cool to get to to get to see. There's a s- lyric to a song that I'm going to approximate 
It's by a band called Wilco. And it goes, and once all your songs have been sung and your paintings have been hung, just remember what was yours is everyone's from now on. And that's not wrong or right, but you can struggle with it all you like, so on and so on. I just feel like, you know what, Swedenborg, I hope you don't mind the invasion of privacy, but I've, it's too bad, man. We need this. Yes. You, you, if you had any idea the amount of um, of help and healing all your personal materials have given to me and to so many people, sorry, man, this is like eminent domain. You know, when the, the <laughs> government says, sorry, we got to build a highway through your yard. You got to sell it to us. Is it, Swedenborg, we are eminent domaining your stuff because, hey, we're all starving here for spiritual stuff and you had so much of it. And I think he'd support that because also it's like, this is, talk about the, yeah, being authentic. You know, that's something that we, uh, that's a big deal nowadays, you know, is like how to be authentic. And this is as authentic as it gets, is being able to not only read these books on theology that he's written, but then it's like, here's the journal of dreams that I, you know, is very, very honest and raw. Uh, I, I think he would be thrilled. I mean, the point he was, he was, when he wrote Servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in the in, the title page of True Christianity, he wasn't joking. I I firmly believe it was his total, the sum total of all of his wishes was to get anybody to listen to what the, the amazing world that he saw. And so I think he'd be thrilled to know that people are taking it to heart and getting on the path to regeneration from it. It, it seems like an utterly selfless project that he was on Yeah. by this point, you know, like why he was going through it was to help everybody. And he is, he man, so genuine. And here's one other little like choice, genuine fact uh, or tidbit from this journal is that the very next night he has this dream and, and he mentions, he says last fortnight. And so we know now, uh, you know, th- those two weeks ago was this transition of him having an address where he can now have meetings in the spiritual world with people and things like that. So uh, he says, among other things, it was said to me that since the last fortnight, I had begun to look much more handsome and to be like an angel. (laughs) God (laughs) grant that this be so. May God stand by me in this and not take his grace away from me. So (laughs) super sweet. He was looking physically more handsome or in his dream? I, I, I think he means spiritually. I think he I means think it's that spiritual, but it's he, he doesn't specify. But I think it sounds like anybody who could say he looks like an angel probably has seen an angel. I don't know. Yeah, I mean the same people who right. were saying like, has anybody lived in this palace before? Who's lived before? And again, like I think it's those same people who are like, hey man, you know something's real really changing in you. You know he's getting Looking good <laughs> positive feedback from his new uh, angel community members, <laughs> which, is, which is very sweet. So. Thanks, Curtis and Jonathan. As always, it is a pleasure to talk to you both. Always a pleasure for us. Till next time. All right, till next time. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Please consider letting us know by rating us on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. When you do, it broadens the reach of this show and all our offerings at Off the Left Eye. To become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, go to otle.causevox.com to support our work with a donation. As a nonprofit, we depend on donor support, and your gift allows these life-changing ideas to reach and inspire new people every day. 
But you know, having you there listening is a real form of support in and of itself. So I mean it when I say thank you for listening. I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next time inside Off the Left Eye.